Hi. Let's get this going already. A lot of thoughts. Episode 71. It's going to be rapid fire. It's going to be hot. It's going to be sizzling like the old sizzler, which every town needs. Where have all the sizzlers gone with the cheesy bread? Oh, where have all the sizzlers gone? You know the old country song. That restaurant is my last memory of smoking or non. Right when you walk in, the hostess, smoking or non, and then you just look beyond her, and it's smoking. All smoking. Who are these people? They like to ash right next to their cheesy bread. Are these people extinct yet? Shouldn't they be? I'm not saying all smokers should be extinct. But the type of people who want to smoke inside of a restaurant while they eat, they're extinct, right? They went away, I think, about 1988. Was it 89? Yeah. Look it up on Wikipedia. When did restaurant smokers go extinct? Those morons are gone. Speaking of morons, we actually share this planet with people who put up book reviews on Amazon. I'm going to say this slowly so you understand me. We share the planet with human beings that go to Amazon to write book reviews because of delivery issues they had with Amazon. I've seen it too many times and now I need to air these people out. So I, I read book reviews. And I like to see what people are saying about the content of a book. And then of course, I look at the one stars. Don't we all? Don't we all take a peek at the one stars to see what these people are saying? You can read all the five stars. People like the book. People like the book. People like the book. I think a lot of us who go to reviews, we look at the one stars like, who are the angry people? Well, if you say something about the book that you didn't like, the plot, the writing, the structure, fine. But what I've seen too many times is people putting one star and then the description has nothing to do with the book. It's, you know, the package that it was delivered in was torn. What the fuck are you doing? Just read the book. Don't worry about the torn package. And stay off of Amazon. Can you do that for us all? I've seen people give one stars because their delivery was delayed. Oh, the Amazon person didn't get to you in time. So all of a sudden, John Grisham's book has to take a hit. Come on. huh? Actually, I would never read Grisham. I tried once. But what I am reading right now is amazing. And it's going to take me about a half a year because it's big. It's long. But it's the Beastie Boys book. If you kind of like the Beastie Boys, read it. If you like hip hop, read it. If you like New York City history from the early 80s, read it. It's so good. Written by two out of the three Beastie Boys as MCA passed away years ago. That was a shocker when Adam Yach, how do we pronounce that last name? Yach? I'll just call him Adam. Although there's two Adams, so I'll just call him MCA. When MCA passed away, I didn't know he was sick. And that was it. The group just stopped. That's why this book was so needed for the Beastie Boys fans out there. And the guys are in their 50s now, so I get it if their hip-hop trio has fizzled, but the book is being written by Ad-Rock and Mike D, and their style of writing is beyond conversational. Just a lot of F-words the way I like it. A lot of S-words, too, I'll tell you. A few D-words, and they do drop the C-word. But no N-words, so don't you worry. The Beastie Boys book is about 3.2 million pages because it's filled with so many photos. And at first, I didn't like that. I believe in a nonfiction book, the photos should be the middle insert. Don't you believe this? The photos should be the middle insert, and you work your way up to those. You don't look at first. 
You don't open up the book right to the photos, just like the acknowledgements. You wait until the end. So then you'll probably understand some of the names in the acknowledgements. You don't go straight to that. But the Beastie Boys almost have a picture book. It's still writing, don't get me wrong. But the pictures accompany the words beautifully. They were documenting their lives really nicely. That's a five-star book. I would say I was kind of a Beastie Boys fan until I saw them live, and then I became a huge fan. Saw them live, what, 2003-ish at Cox Arena in San Diego with my sister. And here's what I didn't know. I didn't know that these guys are expert musicians. So they play the hits. From License to Ill, Check Your Head. They play the hits, Paul's Boutique. And then about an hour and a half into the show, the stage turns. It just kind of turns. And it's like a five-minute intermission. And as the circle stage rotates, now it's soft lighting. And it's a half hour of an instrumental jazzy set. Had no clue they were musicians. I thought they were just fun, party, hip-hop rappers from New York City. But now reading the book, it all makes sense. They started off as a hardcore punk group when they were little teens. And then the first time they heard rap, their worlds changed. And this book goes into the great hip-hop history of mixtapes and MCs trying to rock a party and the late night dances. It's just so good. And you know somebody's going to be on Amazon like, "Mm, one star. One of the pictures was fuzzy. This is a one star book. Amazon left it. In our flower planter. We specifically say drop the Amazon packages on the doormat. One star book. You've seen this. It's terrible. It's like the people that leave restaurant reviews about bad service. I get it. That might hurt the dining experience, but how was the food? That's all we have to know. If you had a bad experience with a waiter, but the food was great, would you go back? My answer is yes, of course. That's really all it should be about. Now, if it takes too long to get to your table... Maybe that could be part of a bad review, but really, it's about the taste. Just like a book, it's about the food. Now, what do people always say? If a book becomes a movie, the book was always better. But with music, think about this for a moment. If an original is covered, I do not believe that the original is always better. Here's my two examples you can add to this list. I don't know how, we're not in the same room right now, but Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons... Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Great song. Lauren Hills, better. Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. Yeah, I'm bringing this up because I went on a run today. I finally went on a run. I think I get fitness about three times a month now. So let's just say I'm a little doughy. But I listened to Cake's cover of I Will Survive. So good. Put it on right now. Pause this podcast and go to any musical streaming device you have and just type in Cake. I Will Survive. It's good. Cake. With the lead singer who doesn't sing. He just talks about everything in his voice like this. And it's monotone. But the songs are good. And Cake is very reliable when it comes to putting out music that I will listen to. Cake's singer sounds like this in every song. But his I Will Survive is good. What other covers are better than the original? All right, Think about this. This is what occupies my mind throughout the day. What other covers are better than the original? Simon and Garfunkel's Boxer is great. But my buddy Jason told me about Mumford & Sons' rendition of The Boxer, and it's good. It's really good. That might be a tie. That's blasphemy for the Simon and Garfunkel fans out there, but that might be a tie. So newer and modern could be better. Not always. Certainly not with game shows. Can I just bring that up for a moment? 
There's a pretty wild amount of things just floating around in this dome today, so stay with me. But game shows nowadays, how many laser shows, lights, bells and whistles, fireworks and loud noises do we need? They're all so bad. I don't watch them, but I flip through the old channel list and I see the new game shows out there where you could win $5 billion. No thanks. Jeopardy still maintains its old school feel. It's still Alex Trebek. The contestants remain the least exciting people ever selected to be on television. And the winnings? Rarely impressive, unless you could put together a streak of like six, seven, eight shows. You're not coming home with much. Often people leave with zero. And the camera stays on them for a moment as they reveal that they're going to have zero. And you wonder, can you even get home? You came to a game show with high hopes. You know everybody who's ever been on a game show has high hopes. Fantasy dreams. What if? What if? I'm the next talking point in America. I'm the next Ken Jennings. 99% of these Jeopardy contestants, sometimes they go home with negative 200. Sometimes, what does that mean? They have to pay. Sometimes they go home with $400. I love it. You could win a category in Jeopardy. You could win a clue. It's 200 bucks. I love it. It's never going to change. They never had a meeting with Alex and said, we're going to go big bells and whistles. You're going to come out, jump through a ring of fire, bang the gong, and forget the suit. We want you in an Affliction t-shirt and some aluminum foil hot silver pants. Okay, Alex? We got you a faux hawk. We're going to have your stylist come in. No, Alex still gets to come out in his suit. Say something quick to the crowd. Quick and classy. Keeping it classy. I think America is now cheering for his health. I love that feeling. Because he's a connection to old television. And when people talk about Walter Cronkite's and Johnny Carson's, he's the last on current television that America is going to grieve when it's all over. I don't just mean his life. I'm talking about the show. Whenever Jeopardy with Alex Trebek is done, it's going to be sad for this country. Or am I overestimating the amount of people that watch Jeopardy? You know what type of guy I am? You want to know this? I'm the type of guy that does not fast forward through the meet the contestants portion of the show, and it's always terrible, but I still give them a chance every time. Last night, two out of three stories involved cats. I'm not anti-cat, but if that's your best story, if that's your best story for national television, you might need to get out a little more. The first guy, this bald guy who ended up winning, and I knew it. I'm not prejudiced, okay? But I can prejudge the contestants. I could go, nope, no chance. Yeah, he might have a chance and no, no chance. I could tell you before the show. I could read their body language. I could see right into their eyes. I do profile Jeopardy contestants. Now, we're not supposed to do that in life. We're not supposed to prejudge anybody. But in Jeopardy? Oh, yeah. I'm prejudiced. I prejudge them quick. The bald guy last night, very calm. And I mean bald, bald. He shaves the sides too. So slick, bald all around. Mr. Clean. He won. He was on the way right. And he was so mild the whole show. What is the Mason-Dixon line? Who is Charlemagne? What is the Tropic of Capricorn? He didn't even grip his buzzer too hard like I would. I'd be squeezing it. I'd be sweating through my suit. Could you imagine being on Jeopardy? Those clues coming at you quick, knowing that Alex is about to judge you if you mispronounce something. Oh, hello, panic attack. But this guy was so calm. And he won. And Alex didn't even let him get through his story. Alex said, so, poker player from Vegas. Do you know Jeopardy James, who was the great contestant? And he's like, no, I don't. And then Alex just moved. 
I just moved on. I was like, that guy didn't even tell a story. Then the lady in the middle didn't like her. I knew she had no chance immediately. No swagger, no bravado, no confidence, no knowledge of trivia. She told a cat story. Then they got to the previous winner. This older guy that we all cheer for in a cardigan, he has a mustache, glasses, mentioned his wife and cat in his story. So let's move on from that as Alex always kind of clowns you a little bit. That's why Meet the Contestants is always a little watchable. Alex's reaction. Story's always awful. Always boring. Personalities lacking. But Alex, he's ready for you. He's got a little Rickles in him. There's a little Don Rickles sitting low in the soul of Trebek. And yes, I'll just wrap this up with, I have convinced myself that I can hang. I mean, I'd get slaughtered, but I've convinced myself that I could, you know, tally about 350 to $400 and a third place finish if I get on Jeopardy. It's a dream. I'd love to. If my choices were, and I mean this seriously, if my choices were to go on a wild game show, strobe lights, laserium, a kooky host where I have to jump into a pit of foam toys, some wipeout type of bullshit, or any game show where I have to slap a buzzer with my forehead and have milk fall on my head from above. I don't know. I don't know. But it sounds wacky, right? That sounds wacky. Give them the milk, Johnny. And I could win, let's say, on these new modern NBC, CBS, these new wild game shows, I could win $500,000. Or go on Jeopardy, lose, and come home with 300 crisp dollars. Yeah, I'm going to Trebek's territory. Yeah, you heard me right. I don't lie to you on this podcast. Why would I lie to you? You think I'm lying right now? No. No, sir. Jeopardy, there's no pomp and circumstance. No pomp, no circumstance. I got a buddy who was on a modern game show. His name is Nick Contoriotis. All right? I'm just going to drop his name right here. He was on a game show with his wife. And it wasn't really like his personality on the show. I think the producers told him to talk a lot, tell a lot of stories, bring that enthusiasm and energy. It was so contrived. It was good, though. He was a big winner. Great guy. But I was like, hmm, I wonder how scripted this is. In terms of them manipulating the editing and how his personality would come across. I mean, he has a great personality, but, you know, they turned him into a TV star for a half hour. And on Jeopardy, they do the opposite. They let you be your boring self. It's a beautiful thing. And I think he won, what, $700,000. So big win, Nick. Big winner. So what else? What else? Yesterday was the 30-year anniversary of the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. 30 years ago, my Nintendo went out. The power went out. Over 60 people died. Houses collapsed throughout San Francisco. Freeways collapsed. Bridges broke. Ugly. I tend to remember it as a sports fan, as the A's and Giants in the World Series, Game 3 at Candlestick, postponed. But as a history teacher, this is history. This is local history. So I showed all my students, it's like five minutes of the footage. And there's a lot of footage from 30 years ago. They have the collapse of the Cypress Freeway. In Oakland, they have a lot of people who are filming whatever they were doing at 5.04 p.m. on October 17th, 1989. I was surprised. ESPN 30 for 30 did a really, really well done documentary on it. And it's not just, you know, from Candlestick Park, but they have a lot of footage from the marina, a lot of footage from the Bay Bridge and throughout the city. It's just like, wow, people were filming. 
And it's all before cell phones. Think about how many people did not get to communicate with friends and family that night. If you have memories of the 89 quake and the earthquake, going back to revisit those memories is now really astounding. For some reason, living it felt a little more mild. And I know I was like eight or nine years old, but living it felt like less interesting than going back yesterday and showing all of my students it. It looks like a true natural disaster, which it was, which it was, but it just didn't strike me that way as a little boy. Now you look back and you're like, holy shit, the Bay Area was rocked, literally. I think at that age, I cared more about the delay in the World Series. I wasn't able to really connect with what it meant to see all of these injuries or hear about all these injuries. I don't even know if I heard about all the injuries and deaths when I was eight or nine, but you go back and you could show all the students, or you personally could see it, but showing all my students, all these 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds, they were wide-eyed, like I had their attention. And I realized if it's caught on tape, it's interesting. And then previously in class, I'm teaching about storming the Bastille and the French Revolution and the tennis court oath and the third estate storming into the Palace of Versailles to rip Louis and Marie Antoinette out of their big old estate, bring them into Paris. And I'm like, all right, you know, some kids are probably interested, but all I have to show you are paintings of it. Here's a painting of the Bastille. And here's another drawing of heads on pikes. You know, the French Revolution, violence in the streets, bloody, gruesome, cutting off heads and putting them on pikes to march around and send a message that we mean business. We're done with the oppressive monarchy. We're taking power into our own hands, you motherfuckers. So that's a direct quote from the third estate. I look around the room and it's not as riveting as showing these kids the earthquake footage. And I realized if there was footage of all of these beheadings of the French Revolution caught on tape, went viral. Here's King Louis' guillotine moment. First of all, would I show it in a classroom? I guess not. I don't know. I'd probably take a poll. Nah, that sounds... Like something I probably shouldn't show a room of teens, but what if? I mean, I show them paintings of it. I show them drawings of it, which is how it was documented. And they read primary sources about it. But what if in the 1700s, late 1700s, now the video camera doesn't even come into existence until the early 1900s. But what if there was crystal clear HD 4K footage of the French Revolution? Could I show all that shit? They'd be interested. They'd be a little more interested. That's why all the history that's being captured right now Perhaps it will capture more attention spans of this short attention span generation, maybe. I've said this before, but if we only have 190 days with them and history continues to build and build and build, we got to start condensing how we teach it or removing things from the earlier days. Yeah, we're not teaching the Renaissance anymore because now we're teaching 9-11. The allotted days we have with students in a history class, it's interesting to think in 100 years, what are the standards going to look like? What's the content going to be? And as it gets more modern, that's how the year progresses. As it gets more modern, perhaps they're more interested. But I did say, raise your hand if you would watch the beheadings. If you were in Paris at this time, would you gather in the middle of town to watch a head get sliced off? Usually 90% of the hands go up. You know, these are teenagers. They go, yup, show me that shit. Show me that motherfucking shit. Direct quote. I go, really? I wouldn't want to see it. No, thank you. No, thank you, sir. This generation, they want to see everything because there's photos of everything. There's videos of everything. So just telling a story verbally, is it good enough? Or if I tell you a story verbally, do you immediately want to Google and Google and Google? Actually, that happens with me too. Who am I kidding? 
I can't act like I'm too far detached from the young generation. If you tell me a story and there's enough interesting things in it that I want to do further research, I'll probably reach for my phone. Doesn't mean I'm looking for photos. Doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to YouTube, but yeah, I want to do a little more research. If you tell me something interesting, yeah, after most documentaries, I go to Wikipedia and keep reading and reading. Don't you? After most biopics, don't you keep reading and reading? Even as I read a book, even as I'm reading the Beastie Boys book, I find myself going to my phone and looking up more and more about it. What a good book. The In Sound from the Way Out, by the way. That's the album you probably don't know. That's the instrumental jazzy Beastie Boys album that you would go, what? This is the Beastie Boys? This is the fight for the right to party, fellas? Paul Revere? Intergalactic Planetary? Yeah, the In Sound from the Way Out. So good. If we talk about generations, like my parents are the previous generation, and then I'm the current generation, that my daughter is the next generation. The Beastie Boys are like in the middle between me and my parents. So it's the type of history that I love. Early 80s, give me that sweet nostalgia. Talking about Run DMC, Sugar Hill Gang, Africa Bambada. Let me ask you something right now. What are your gas station habits? You could tell me. Full tank every time? You pull in, full tank, or do you squeeze about 20 bucks into your car? What are your gas station habits? I now look around. Everybody's so different. Nobody's friendly at the gas station. Nobody makes small talk at the gas station. It's beautiful. Isn't it nice? You don't get out of your car and go, hey, hey, how are you? How's your day going? Good. No, the least friendly place ever, the gas station. You stay in your own sphere. You don't even look. You don't even make eye contact with anyone, you son of a bitch. Okay, so... I personally, I'll tell you mine, then you tell me yours, and you're like, how could I tell you mine if you're there and I'm here? I don't know how podcasts work. Are we not on a telephone call? Okay. 30 bucks every time. And often, I hold it the whole time. I know you could put the little tab up and make it pump automatically as you go to your phone or sit in your car, but no, I like to hold and watch. I watch the whole thing. And I try to hit $30 on the dot. Not 3001 becomes a game. I like even numbers. What does this say about me? I don't know. Maybe something in the world of OCD, but I never go full tank. Perhaps that's a financial indictment. You go full tank every time? Do you just go full tank, lift the tab, and get back in your car and wait about five minutes? Did you hear that? I think I just burped while talking. I'm sorry. But we don't delete on this show. No, no, no. Look around. Are, are you the type of person who goes in for Funyuns, Doritos, barbecue chips, sunflower seeds, chewing tobacco? What do you do? Only the least healthy things in a gas station food mart. Only the worst shit to put in your system. Cheetos? Flamin' Hot Cheetos? By the way, Flamin' Hot Cheetos, I'm convinced not all teens like it as much as they eat it. Teens love Flamin' Hot Red Cheetos. I've had one or two in my life. Beyond disgusting. The color red on a Cheeto? No, it's supposed to be the orange dust. The Cheeto might be the greatest taste of all time. The Cheeto itself. The flaming Hot? It's an insult to me. I, I'm personally offended when I see all these teens doing it just to fit in. You don't like it. I think that happens. Teens have such a desire to fit in and go with the trends that even sometimes in the world of food and snacks, they might eat some shit they don't like. Just to look... Like they're a part of the in crowd. Well, be you. Put down the flaming Hot Cheetos 
the worst snack ever. Why do you like pain? Why do you like pain when you eat? I understand some people like spicy. I get it. Some Indian restaurants, maybe Thai, maybe wasabi with your sushi. Maybe even you like hot salsas. I get all that. If it helps the taste, enhances the experience. But Flamin' Hot Cheetos turns the Cheeto into a weapon. Something to just sting you. Make you feel like there's canker sores all over the inside of your mouth. You don't want that. Where was I? Gas station habits. Do you go in and do you always buy a bag of bullshit that you know is bad for you? It's just going to sit in your stomach like plastic because that's been on the shelves for about, I don't know, 25 years. You get Chex Mix, do you? Do you get the Snack Pack Bordenave Mix where you just like those little brown pumpernickel dried out crackers and then you throw away everything else? Huh? Corn nuts? So loud when you crunch you can't hear anybody else? And if you're going to do corn nuts original, right? No other flavor. Or do you not even go in? You don't even want to go in. Because touching the door handle makes you sick. You're such a germaphobe. You go, ugh, no thanks. Even touching the pump makes you grossed out. You go, how many hands have been on this all day? So you go right to the hand sanitizer. But my real question is when it's all done. Here's why I bring it up. Do you do the pump shake? Do you do the pump shake in and out, in and out, in and out? The old metal fornication, in and out, in and out, the pump shake, in and out, try to get the last drops, or do you just yank it right out of there and put it back in the holster? I sit there, humping and pumping, humping and pumping, shaking the last drops of gasoline. And this is after it's done. After it's done fueling your vehicle, there's still something in the rope. Is it called a rope? The tube? There's something in there that I like to shake into my car because I picture myself getting an extra mile or two. I picture a few drops of gasoline that I'm pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping into my car. And I always get embarrassed because I know someone's watching me like this fool. But I shake the pump and I pump the pump and I hump the pump until I get at least a few more drops and convince myself that it's going to save me from running out of gas on the highway. Running out of gas? You're wondering, wait, why would you even let it get that low? Yeah, I let it get low sometimes. I know I shouldn't. But in my entire life, once. To answer your next question, once I've run out of gas. And it was just at the exit of my home. And I think I was flustered beforehand. I think I was stressed. I think it was more about my emotional state than my stupidity. Can I blame it on my emotional state being forgetful? No, I can't do that because the light is right in your face. You know when you're down on gas and you need to go, but you try to stretch it. I tried to stretch it. I tried to stretch it once and I looked like a fool on the side of the road waiting for AAA. That's how that story ends. I got a bunch of stuff today. All right, you might need to take a breather. If you're like, you know what? I kind of need to go check out Joe Rogan, a few other podcasts, and then I'll get back to you, Josh. I'm not offended. This one's getting a little long. But last night in bed, I have insomnia for good reasons too. That's always interesting. Like sometimes insomnia comes from thoughts that are just ruminating in your mind and you can't rid them and you can't get away from the stressful thoughts or irritating thoughts or annoying thoughts. But sometimes it's like positive things are filling your mind and it's keeping you up. And you're like, this isn't the worst form of insomnia. So the positive thoughts were my daughter. I'm just like, wow, wow, right? I think most parents have that moment like, oh my God, these kids are great. They can be. Often they are. That individual connection you feel that makes the world a wonderful place, that was on my mind at about 1030 and then those thoughts kept going and going and going. I looked at the clock. It was 11:12. I go, whoa, 42 minutes of just thinking about how great it is to have one. And I actually had this thought. One is fine. One's a lot sometimes, not just financially, but, you know, takes up all of my attention. 
You know, the plan is to have another, but for now, fine, good, enjoying it, loving it, feeling blessed. And then I started picturing having two. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay, that's a little panic. No, 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 it'll happen. But yeah, picturing two, two humans to look over. It's okay. It'll happen. And then I started thinking about LA Chargers quarterback, Phillip Rivers. And here's why. Phillip Rivers is my age. We're both born in 1981. Phillip Rivers joined the Chargers in 2004 when he's about 23. And I'm about 23, so I think this is toward the beginning of my radio career, my sports radio career in San Diego. And I remember seeing him for the first time come to his press conference, pushing a stroller, pushing a stroller. This is a rookie in the NFL with his wife pushing a stroller with a real human baby in there. And I was like, oh my God, we're the same age and he's a dad. This is also the same time in my life where I was convinced I couldn't handle a beagle. Didn't want my dog. I think there were about four to five days of my life where I legitimately didn't want to have Muggsy, who's now my pride and joy, who's actually currently at the vet having ear canal removal surgery. Let's table that for a moment. So back to Philip Rivers with a stroller. I've never felt more different from somebody my age. You could have shown me a kid in Malaysia my age, and I'd be like, "Huh, we got some things in common. Philip Rivers with a stroller and me barely able to handle a beagle. I was thinking, my goodness, this guy is different. This guy is six foot six and now very wealthy. This southerner is coming to replace Drew Brees? Sorry, I could go on a 20-minute rant about how bad that decision was. But football story aside, right? They should have kept Drew Brees, obviously. But football story aside, I didn't realize that Philip Rivers was going to dad real hard. He wasn't just going to dad once or twice or thrice or four times or five times or six times or seven times or eight times, but nine. Philip Rivers is now my age and he has nine children. I understand finances are not a concern in his world. I get that. But Philip fucking Rivers has nine children. When he puts the key through the hole of his front door and walks in to his entrance of his home, there are nine children living at his house. His oldest, 16. His youngest, a newborn. They might have all the maids in the world. They might have no maids. I don't know. I imagine they have a lot of help. They definitely have a big old estate. But nine? How is nine even possible? I mean that. When you think about dishes, think about the little things, not the big things. Think about the little things. Like I find myself loading the dishwasher and doing a full load like every 48 hours. And it's just three of us here. I just added one human baby to the family. And it's like, we're always doing dishes. We're always doing laundry. If you have nine kids, what? Do you have a lot of washing machines and dishwashers? Plus, do you even get to know them all? If I lived with nine children of mine, there's no way in hell I would know them all. There'd be a few where I'd be like, what grade are you in? And what's your birthday? And I forget, are you a vegan? Okay, so we're ordering pizza tonight. How many do I need? Oh, every time we order pizza, how many do I need? Oh, okay, that's a lot. And then who likes pepperoni? Who likes mushroom? Who likes olive? Does anybody here like, That disgusting combo of pineapple and Canadian bacon. Oh, you do? Oh, you do also? What's your name again? Nine? Fucking kidding. But here's where I saw him 
making it work. Throughout the years, he would, you know, add a baby every year, add a baby every year, add a baby every year. And the Chargers used to have this event called Shoot for a Cure for Huntington's disease. It was probably my favorite night of the year. Now, their practice facility, the old Chargers Park on Murphy Canyon, the team had a PR director, a nice guy named Bill Johnston, whose wife uh, was suffering from Huntington's disease, and she passed away a couple years ago. But they would you know, have this fundraiser where all the players would come and all the coaches and the owner and his family, and they would set up all these hoops on the grass. And then you know, people would pay good money to eat from these stands that restaurants were filling up, full bar, shoot free throws into the night. It was like the greatest event. I think I was at the right age for it too. Like, yes, I liked to party. Yes, I liked hanging out with fans. Nowadays, it kind of sounds like a whole thing, you know. It sounds like a whole thing, but I would stay for like six, seven hours. We would do our shows there and then stay. Hang out with some of the players, the big offensive linemen smoking cigars, drinking Heinekens, chilling. But I remember seeing Philip Rivers in his polo shirt and khaki shorts. Stepped right out of a Ralph Lauren ad. Just was a dad already. Was a grown-ass man at a time where I wasn't. Kind of sounds weird to say, but it's true. And we're the same age. I've always thought that throughout his career. Well, we're the same fucking age. Swearing too much on this podcast, yeah? What are the chances all nine get along? Zero? How many fights in the home would you average per day? FPD, fights per day, if you had nine kids. 3.6? How many cat stories on Jeopardy per week? C-S-O-J-P-W. Cat stories on Jeopardy per week? 4.9, I just read. That's what they say, 4.9. All right, I'll end with this. It's been too long already, but I'll end with this. There's a chance Donald Trump is just messing with everybody. There's a chance that he's given up on the world, that human existence is so absurd to him And he just doesn't give a shit that he's messing with people. Now, I don't want to minimize the actual negative impact he has on many people. So the big issues, I'm not even going to address those because there are some serious things. Lives, lives at risk because of him. And there's also some good things economically. So politics aside, his personality, I had the realization that he might just be messing with all of us. The world's greatest troll just trying to get a reaction out of all of us, which he does. He gets a reaction out of all of us, is also the president. Who is the greatest troll in America? The president of the United States. He's just poking us. He's just poking us. And I bet he does it. He's the type of guy who probably winks at somebody. Like right as he's sending an inflammatory tweet just to piss somebody off. He probably winks at somebody in the room. Watch this. This is a character of a man. This is a character of a man. Everything about him is too weird. From the hair, to the way he speaks, to the way he acts. Like, you couldn't just picture him in sweats at night, having a beer, eating popcorn, watching a game, petting a dog. You couldn't just picture him laughing at a Dave Chappelle special on Netflix. Like, doing normal human things? Giving his wife a massage? Is that a normal human thing? Sorry, that was weird. Uh, What else could you not picture him doing? Cooking? Could you picture him sautéing onions? No. Pumping gas? No, but that's besides the point. Here's why I think he's an absurdist who's just given up on life and he's playing his own existence like a game. It's just a game at this point. I don't think many people could take this much criticism. Think about the most amount of criticism you can handle 
It probably involves some people in your life or at work or in your family. And if it's too much, you're like, ah, that kind of hurts. You know, I, I can't take that much. Even if you're not sensitive, everybody has a certain level. He's not sensitive to any of it. He likes it. Weekend update when they go at him, fine. Kimmel, Colbert, Corden, Fallon, Trevor Noah, John Oliver, Bill Maher. Name any talk show on TV. They have so much content and fodder. And they go after him all the time. And you know he's enjoying it. If I ever turned on the TV and there was a talk show host talking about how bad I am at my job and how awful I am at all of my endeavors and my ideas are just beyond shitty, it would sting. I don't think he's ever been stung. I honestly don't think he has that ability. I'm not trying to say I'm impressed with him, but I do marvel at his ability to minimize these things and just send a tweet. Hey, Saturday Night Live, you're not funny. Hey, Steve Kerr, you're a dummy. Anybody who criticizes him, he goes right back at them. Doesn't matter. If you're the lowest on the totem pole or a powerful leader of a country, he'll go toe-to-toe with you. He doesn't care. You have to have a soul to care. He doesn't. To be this soulless, I bet makes it a lot of fun. I think he treats it like a reality TV show. I think it's just a game. You know, even though there are real lives being impacted, And even though there's like some giant negatives, you know, he pisses people off to the point where I think it consumes their lives. I think a lot of people who are Trump critics, it actually hurts the quality of their lives. But you know who would be really hurt to find out that he's just messing with everybody? I think his supporters, they'd be hurt to know he doesn't give a shit. Like he definitely doesn't care about hurting people. We know that. But he also doesn't seem to care the other way either. You think he only wants people to support him and cheer for him and love him? No. He doesn't. He feeds off the negative energy. If you're a Trump supporter, if you're a fan, and you're thinking, my goal would be if this whole country supported him and praised him and loved him. You know who would dislike that? Trump. He's having a good time right now going on the attacks. He loves all the talk shows that needle him. It's all a game. Will there be four more years of the game? I don't know. But you wonder. If he has the recipe, if he understands the idea of remaining in the headlines at all times, every day, I've never seen in, in my lifetime, I've never seen a president remain in the headlines every day. Like he could set a forest fire and then drive an ice cream truck around it. And you don't even know what to respond to. You're like, okay, there's a forest fire and he's driving an ice cream truck around it. And then if he got out of the ice cream truck and just released 50 Chinese crested dogs, I think those are the hairless ones. Your mind would be like, what the fuck just happened? There's a forest fire he just set. Now he's driving an ice cream truck around the forest. And then I thought there'd be ice cream in there. Choco tacos, creamsicles. But he just opened up the back doors of the ice cream truck and 60 Chinese crested bald dogs jumped out. You're like, I don't know what to respond to. This is Trump every single day. Every single day he has our minds going in so many different directions that it's somehow has worked to his advantage. Not all. Polls are wrong. Most people see these polls and they go, huh, his approval rating is high one day, it's low one day. It's high one day, it's low one day. Well, when it's high, who knows? If these people, these idiots, these people who write reviews on Amazon for books because the delivery had some issues, these same people, if they're like, well, I know the name when I go vote, that's the name I will vote for because I know the name. What a victory for me. 
He knows there's plenty of people in this country who leave Amazon reviews for a book because of the way it was delivered. The package was torn. There's a lot more of those people than intellectual, smart, brilliant people in this country. And that is how I will end this episode. Episode 71 is now officially in the motherfucking books. And guess what, pal? I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 